On the last podcast, we started with a story, and I want to do the same thing again today. So the story goes like this. God selects among all humanity a special people to do a particular vocation in the world. These people are to act as caretakers of creation and priests who minister to God and mediate his goodness to the world. These people are given a land and they're told they can live in that fruitful land so long as they continue to fulfill their divinely appointed job description. But they do not remain faithful. They give in to temptation. They rebel against God and and they're banished from their land. They find that life is much harder east of their home. Labor and toil, the pain of being separated from home, longing to return, longing to be restored. But they're not left without hope. They are promised something even better in their future, a a Zion, where there is no more, as Isaiah puts it in chapter 27, no more coiling serpent. These lessons from their past serve as reminders of their responsibility to be faithful to their calling, their vocational calling to act as God's vice regents, rightly ordering and blessing the world, making creation into a home of God's presence, rejecting that calling and, and giving into the voices of chaos and deception leads to death. As it's said in a few different points in this big story, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. And at another point, attached to the same idea, the instruction, choose this day who you will serve. Now, as you were listening to that story, maybe, maybe it sounded a bit familiar. Obviously, there's some sort of connection to the Bible with this story. If you've spent any time in Sunday school or, or church or Christian schools, maybe, maybe there's some things about this story that sound familiar. And maybe one of the first things you thought of was Israel's story, Israel's meta-narrative. And as you hear the details of uh, God selecting among humanity a special people to do a particular vocation in the world, and that vocation is to to serve as as priests to the world, as a light to the nations, as, as people who mediate God's goodness to the world, and you hear about the details of a, a people given a particular land a fruitful land, a good land, and told that they are to live a certain way in that land, and then they don't, and they give into temptation, and then they rebel, and then they get banished from that land. Yeah, that that is Israel's story. And as you think about their story, Israel's history, that is their story, right? 
586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. Israel has lost sight of its vocational call. It has given in to worshiping idols. And and before you say to yourself, well, a big deal, does, you know, bowing down and worshiping idols warrant such sort of catastrophe that if you know history or you know uh, the Old Testament that, that was brought by Nebuchadnezzar, does it warrant that? But then you start understanding a little bit more about what idol worship was like, and it involved mo- many times frequently child sacrifice, and, and, and even Solomon has allowed these sorts of high places to be built, these altars of child sacrifice to happen in the land. And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and sacks the city of Jerusalem, and they are exiled. They are brought eastward to the shores of Babylon, exiled from their land. And as you hear that story, and you hear the story I tell you, that, that again, that might be the thing that you think of. But perhaps as you heard the story that I was telling you about God giving people a land, a fruitful land, that they are given a sort of job description, that they are presented with a way that they are to live in that land, but they give in to temptation. And as a result of giving into that temptation and the rebellion that they participate in against God, that they experience exile, being cast out of their land, cast eastward. And maybe, just maybe, You heard that story and you thought of Adam and Eve and the garden. If you heard both stories as I was reading, I think you're getting the point. Today's episode of Deep Talks, we're going to explore Genesis 2 and 3. We're going to explore the second creation narrative in Scripture And we're going to try to understand the Bible. We're going to try to move as close as we can to the location of inspiration, which as we've talked about in previous podcasts, finds its source in God, but we want to trace as close as we can back to where God had vested his inspiration, who he had endowed that inspiration with. And we're going to try to trace that back all the way back to the original authors and audiences that were first hearing and reading these stories to try to understand it from their eyes. And then we're going to deal with some of the big questions, the questions surrounding Genesis 2 to 3 that maybe the ancient peoples weren't thinking about, but we're certainly wrestling with. Questions about human origins, questions about are these really the first people to have ever lived and did they live six to 8,000 years ago, this Adam and Eve, and where did all this brokenness come from in creation? We're going to explore all of these questions and probably more in today's episode of Deep Talks. So stay tuned. You're listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. This is part three in our series on Darwin, the Bible, science, theology. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to Deep Talks. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to uh, the first two episodes in this series, 
on, uh, I think, I don't have the title in front of me. I think I'm calling it something like Darwin, the Bible, theology and science, something, something like that. This series where we're exploring some of the hard questions that Christians and even people outside of the uh, Christian tradition maybe have for Christians, and in particular evangelical Christians, about uh, the Bible, the book of Genesis in particular, and uh, how and in what way is it relevant in uh, helping us understand the world today when we have modern science and seems like modern science is telling a, a different story about human origins and and so, um, if you haven't listened to those yet, I really want to encourage you go back, listen to those first two episodes. So today we started off with a story, a story that uh, I would contend is not just the story of Israel, but it's the story of Genesis two and three. It's the story of Adam and Eve. As we talked about in previous podcasts, one of the things we want to do as we explore Genesis 2 and 3, and in many ways, uh, some of the stuff that we're going to explore in Genesis 2 and 3 uh, might be even more difficult than what we did when we explored Genesis 1. As we explore Genesis 2 through 3, we want to understand this story through the ancient eyes, trying to get to the location of inspiration which uh, if it's not found again in the author's intentions to that original audience, if it's found in our questions of the text, and especially us, we who are modern people, we bring those questions to the text and we expect our answers to be found in the text, then what we're actually saying is that the location of God's divine inspiration isn't actually in the Bible, it's, it's in us. So in efforts to try to steer clear of that, we want to understand it through ancient eyes. One of the first things right away I want to contend about what Genesis 2 through 3 would have been about to those ancient people who were living, let's picture maybe somebody hearing this story as they were in captivity on the shores of Babylon, or maybe when they first returned, those that the remnant that decided they were going to uh, return back to Jerusalem when uh, Cyrus the Great allowed uh, the Jewish people to return back and they're hearing the, the Pentateuch, they're hearing the Torah, they're hearing the law for maybe the first time there. As they're hearing this story... The plot of the story wrapped up in uh, some important symbolic details here, and we're going to explore some of the symbolism in Genesis 2 through 3, but I think one of the main things we want to take away right from the get-go is we listen to that story when you go and you read Genesis 2 through 3 again, is that this is Israel's story. And this story helps them understand their own situation. In fact, it's a sort of theodicy. It's a, it's a story that helps them deal with their own suffering and their own experience of their people's journey as being at one point a, a regional powerhouse in the ancient Near East, 
obviously at its peak in uh, David and Solomon's reign, and then this uh, long and slow descent from the height and the glory of the reign of David and Solomon all the way into their destruction from Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And as they're thinking about their story and, and trying to understand and grapple with what went wrong, Genesis 2 through 3 serves as a sort of blueprint for what went wrong. It explains, it tells them what went wrong. And so I want us to think as you go back and read Genesis 2 through 3 sometime today as you're listening to this or you're watching this or sometime in the, in the next week, I want to encourage you to go back and read Genesis 2 through 3, but don't read it with the questions you have. I want you as maybe a creative exercise to picture yourself as a person, an Israelite, a person that's been hauled off into captivity. Maybe it's with you are living within that very generation that saw Nebuchadnezzar come in and, and sack Jerusalem and, and carry, uh, kill many, many, many people and lead so many off into captivity. And you're wrestling with that. I want you to picture reading it from those eyes because that is very well likely the the people that were first hearing the story or reading this story uh, as we read it today. Now, certainly there's a, a very strong possibility that there was a long oral history of this story being uh, told before it was ever really written down and disseminated in a form that's similar to what we have access to today. But it's very likely that this was a story that was so important to those people because it was their story. Now, as we come to this text, as we come to Genesis 2 through 3, and in the next day or the, over the course of the next week, as you reread it again, I want to encourage you and challenge you to do something. I, I want to I challenge you to, um, to maybe check some of your presuppositions, your previously held beliefs about this uh, book at, or I should say this story at the door and and try to again approach it with a maybe different set of questions. I think some of the things that right away we should do even before we maybe dig into some of the the history, uh, some of the the ways that these really um, to us today maybe peculiar symbols of uh, like cosmic trees, trees that have knowledge of good and evil and trees that somehow would maybe give potentially eternal life. Before we start um, trying to grapple with some of those symbols in their context, maybe one of the things we need to do is just even ba in a basic way, observe some of the things that if you perhaps grew up like me reading this story a particular way, uh, you would see are actually not even explicitly explained in Genesis Two. And I want to start with maybe one of the, the first ones. Uh, one of the first uh, things that we want to maybe debunk right away as we start to read Genesis 2 and try to figure out what, what's going on here. 
First of all, we, we should probably debunk this notion that when in Genesis uh, 1, uh, it talks about God's creation being good, that in somehow sh- uh, this, this word good means that it's absolutely perfect, that it's somehow like what heaven, or we could say like the age to come would be. And uh, there's actually, there's no real indication that that is what good means. And this is maybe where we need to get into, again, a, a little bit of uh, getting out a, a lexicon and concordance, and we, we start to see the different ways that the, the Hebrew word for good is used in different places throughout the Old Testament to help us understand what that word uh, good means means. And one of the things we'd be able to note right away is that uh, good usually refers to a condition in which something is is working and functionally as it, it was designed to do. Uh, and this doesn't mean that it is obviously, it doesn't mean something being good doesn't mean that it's perfect. I've heard a lot of things even as people start thinking about, you know, the... Um, Genesis 1 and then 2 and 3, that uh, again, there was this notion, I I grew up with this as well, this notion that um, I think I've even heard uh, in recent creationist debates, this idea that animals wouldn't eat other animals, there would be no carnivores, um, you know, there are things like that that just seem to be, well, we're really imposing a meaning on good there that it might not actually be. Maybe maybe the way God designed uh, creation to function, even though it might seem bloody to us, is that it's possible maybe God designed creation to function so that sharks would eat fish and, you know, uh, uh, lions would hunt gazelle. Um there are some strong there's some difficult questions that we would need to wrestle with about why is it why would God do something why would that be the way it's uh, you know he designed it to uh, optimally function that's a question for another time but one of the things right away I want to unpack is that there's there's no reason for us to believe that good means uh like per- perfectly heavenly um that's just simply not the way good that word good in Hebrew is used throughout um, throughout the the Old Testament. Tying back into this uh, story, this layered story, right, that we see in Genesis 2 through 3, that is also, again, kind of the meta story of Israel. One of the examples of, again, how good is used is as a description of the promised land in Numbers chapter 14 verse 7, that, that same sort of description that it would be good, it is good, um, is used there. Now, if we were to take that sort of uh, maybe idea that we have about good and Eden, um, and we think that it is somehow without any sort of non-order or uh, any sort of what we might consider violence, 
that doesn't apply when we when we see it as a description of the promised land in Numbers chapter 14. It's obvious that that land, though God deems it as good, is is actually still filled with um, with enemies. Even some reports that right they're they're giants, and not to mention that there there's going to be uh, predatory animals, etc. So this is just one example of why we don't necessarily want to impose that idea automatically on the text. Again, there are strong questions that come up about, boy, if good as God made creation included these sorts of features, uh, is that good? Why did he do that? And and those are really good questions. I think we're going to explore that at another time. But the purpose of this podcast today is just to kind of like break down what what is the Genesis, these two creation stories all about. And so one of the first things that we maybe want to check as we read through uh, Genesis 2 is this notion that uh, creation is uh, already, is, is perfect. And why, why we mean perfect is there would not be any sort of, uh, people wouldn't experience any physical pain, animals wouldn't. And uh, I don't think we have evidence for that based on that word and how it's used in the rest of the Old Testament. Perhaps another misconception that we would have as we start to read uh, Genesis 2 and this is one of the difficulties of just reading, reading the Bible, uh, reading it in English, and noting that obviously its original language is is not English. Uh, one of the difficulties that again people that um, translate the text into from Hebrew and of course in the New Testament and Greek into the languages that we use today, English, or maybe you speak a, or read in a different language as your first language, is that's a really difficult job to make these sorts of uh, conversions into, into our language and then to carry the same meaning. I want to talk a little bit about the word Adam uh, as it's used. And uh, Again, I'm, I'm using here very heavily uh, the work of Dr. John Walton, though I'm going to be uh, borrowing from some, some other scholars, theologians as well later in the podcast. Dr. John Walton highlights clearly how in Genesis 1 through 5, the word Adam or Adam is used in a variety of ways. Now, when we read uh, Genesis 2, maybe the first thing we think of when we see the word Adam is we think of maybe like the flannel graph stories that we had in Sunday school and this uh, naked guy with a fig leaf over his private parts and a woman in this space. And that's um, it's very well, it's possible that, that that may be what the uh, the second creation story is intending to tell. But uh, as we look actually at the, the 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 Hebrew language, it's it's not as clear that that is what is intended to be communicated. First of all, I should note that Adam as a Hebrew word simply means just it just means human. So uh, we think of it again as a name, but Adam is is quite literally. I mean, it means human 
in Hebrew. I think as we just kind of naturally think through this story, and this, again, Dr. John Walton does a great job of highlighting this, I think, um, you know, it, it would be kind of absurd to picture that in this sort of primordial scene that Adam and Eve are even, you know, if we're talking about them as individual people, that they are speaking Hebrew. I mean, Hebrew is not even, doesn't even become a language to, at the very earliest, somewhere in the middle of the uh, second millennium uh, BC. So uh, they're not calling each other Adam and Eve. Uh, that would be very unlikely because they probably aren't speaking Hebrew. And so when we we see this, we, we see that Adam means human. And at times it does look like it's talking about an individual person. Um, but at other times, we could see that there's evidence that it's not talking about an individual person. And again, this requires us to actually maybe do some some diving into the Hebrew language. And this is where you don't have to be an expert at it. I'm certainly not an expert in Hebrew at all. I, I don't I I don't I don't speak a lick of it. I can I can't read Hebrew even. But if we we go to people that have given their lives to this, some of the stuff becomes really, really clear. So let's talk about how Adam in Genesis 1 through 5 actually has different uses, and we want to see how it's used in Genesis 2 to maybe understand it better. One of the distinctions in how Adam, Adam, is used in uh, Genesis 1 through 5, so I'm I'm bringing that up because that that gives us a a larger sample size to kind of determine how to use this word human, this Hebrew word human, and how it's applied. And one of the key distinctions is whether or not uh, there is a definite article in front of the word Adam or Adam. And as you can imagine, if there is a definite article in front of it, then it can't be uh, used as a personal name because that'd be really, really weird. Like if you had a friend that was named Adam, you wouldn't come up to them and say, hi, the Adam. Like once you start saying the Adam or the uh, Eve, you're, you're not talking about a single individual person. And so actually the only time in Genesis, um, the only time in Genesis uh, chapters one through five that Adam or Adam is used as a personal name is actually in the genealogical section in Genesis five verses three through five. So in that section, uh, it is used as a personal name. As you look at some of the other examples, and you guys can, you know, if you want to pause, periodically pause this podcast to jot down some of these references, it might be helpful for you. Uh, Adam, in a general, generic sense, um, with a, a definite article attached in front of that, is used in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, Genesis 2, 5. Genesis 3, 22, 5-1, and 5, chap, uh, 5, verse 2. So that is using like human in a sort of 
generic sense, right? That the way we would use it, like, uh, you know, humans are, there are humans that live on earth. That's a generic sense. You're not naming a specific kind of human or human as a person's individual name. You would say the humans live on earth. You know, you might say that if you were uh, an alien, right? Uh, There's other ways in which Adam, Adam is used beyond just kind of a generic sense. There's an archetypal sense, and that's used with a definite article. And we see that used in Genesis 2 most frequently. So the two types of ways that Adam or human is used in Genesis 2 are as an archetypal, which means as a as a representative, right? It's not naming a person uh, as an individual name because there's a definite article in front. So we might say the human or the humanity in a archetypal sense. We see that in Genesis two verse seven, Genesis two eighteen. Genesis 2.21, There's a definite article in front of Adam, Adam in Genesis 2.8, in Genesis 2.15, And again, as a personal name with no definite article, in Genesis 5, chapter or verse 1 and 3 through 5, in the genealogy section. So that's really, really interesting as we think about how to interpret this text. It brings up some questions. If there's a definite article placed in front of this word Adam, maybe it isn't meaning a single individual person's name. Now, it might be at this point where uh, if you're listening to this and you've never encountered these ideas uh, or you've never heard of these things before, you, you might be feeling challenged. And one of the things I want to encourage you to do is just to keep following along. Keep keep listening to the podcast here. Uh, don't give up. Maybe right now you're feeling like, man, is Paul saying that there was no Adam? And I think what you'll find out is I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, again, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, if we're going to take this notion of biblical inspiration seriously, we can't just import whatever meaning we want onto these words. What if God's inspired communication wasn't to say Adam as an individual guy's name, but what we have is humanity and Eve's name meaning, and we can call her, we can still stick with these terms by saying Eve's name, but the the word Eve meaning life. So we have taken out of humanity from his side, and we we could explore some of that uh, symbolism and maybe some of the ways that, you know, just this notion of a single rib being taken out might be the the wrong way of understanding this. We have humanity placed in this particular location, humanity and life, 
There are cosmic trees. There is a chaos creature, and I'm using that term on purpose because that is how people in the ancient Near East would have understood a serpent uh, to act, and serpents frequently act this way in stories like this surrounding Israel. Cosmic trees, talking serpents. Guys, the question that we need to have as we approach this text is if when we come to the text and we read Genesis 2 through 3, and we picture flannel graph style Adam, and here comes Adam with his little fig leaf covering his private parts, and and, and Eve has a, a few more fig leaves just so you know the kids uh, in Sunday school aren't exposed to gratuitous nudity. nudity. Uh, and we see this, and then we we see uh, this snake come in, and this is we're kind of imagining that this story is is telling us something as if a video camcorder were there. I don't think that's necessarily getting uh, the intentions. And I'm going to explore why I think uh, as we explore some more of the phrases and some more of the things that are happening in Genesis 2 through 3, I think hopefully you'll begin to see that there's something more being told in this story and that God's inspired communication is maybe answering questions that, again, when we come to the text uh, w- with our questions, it might not be answering those ones. It might be answering different ones. Now, if you're open to the possibility that maybe reading Genesis 2 through 3 with modern eyes and modern questions, if you're open to the possibility that that might not be the right way to read it, then I want to encourage you, please keep listening here. And um, let's, let's be open to the ways in which as we study the scriptures and we, we try to really work to get close to that location of inspiration, we're going to be closer to understanding God's inspired, intended communication, that it might upset the apple cart. I know for me, this has been a big journey over the years, and this was a journey for me that I started realizing that, again, the way I was reading scripture, the way I was treating the inspired text was I was really saying I was inspired or the people that have told me these stories in a particular way, their way of telling me the story was inspired. And uh, so let's keep going forward. Another way that I had sort of imagined uh, this uh, the Genesis 2 through 3 creation story happening is I, I had imagined it, and I can't really p- remember particularly if anybody had actually explicitly said this or if it was just kind of assumed as you heard the story, but I frequently imagined that this uh, story in Genesis 2 through 3 was happening on day six as part of the creation week story in Genesis 1. But as you look at uh, Genesis 2 through 3, there's going to be um, a few reasons to n- not think that way. And uh, I would argue that that actually isn't the correct way to understand what's happening here in Genesis 2 through 3. 
One of the big reasons why I can say that is that, um, you know, in, in Genesis 2 through 3, we actually see creation kind of happening in a way that's different than the ordering in Genesis 1. Uh, for example, you know, it, it, it says in Genesis 2 and the, the way that it's ordered in Genesis 2, you know, God creates Adam and there's actually like no plants. And yet, um, you know, in Genesis 1, uh, the plants come on, you know, they're created or, or ordered on day three. And obviously humans have their their creation day on day on day six. But in Genesis 2, we actually see humans. And then later, if you go actually to, and I'm going to pull it up right now, uh, Genesis 2, as we look at the text, we're actually going to see um, maybe a different a different ordering. And that, you know, for some people that might be problematic, they might think, you know, well, gosh, now all of a sudden are you telling me that there's, you know, uh, competing creation stories? No, but we just need to understand that there is intention and meaning behind even the ordering and where things are placed in the story that are trying to communicate things that aren't about scientific descriptions, all right? So, uh, again, Genesis 2, and we actually, uh, you know, uh, we, we see a, um, we could start perhaps here in uh, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up, for the Lord had God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became a living creature. All right, and then the Lord God, verse 8, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man who he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made... Uh, Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. River of life flows out, right? Um, Then we go uh, jump a little bit further ahead to verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed... And uh, if you notice here, you know, you might see a footnote in your, um, in your Bible, and uh, John Walton talks about this as well, that, you know, when it says in verse 19, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, kind of gives the impression by saying had formed, that it's, it's, it's talking about, well, he, he had done it, remember back in Genesis 1, but uh, I think John Walton and many others forcefully argue, you can usually oftentimes see a footnote in your Bible. If you're looking at it on Bible Gateway, which I'm actually doing right now as I do this, now the Lord God created is actually a better way of understanding the Lord God formed, not just had formed. That's kind of a, it's a choice that the translators make. And that's a bit of a, a theological choice that they make. But 
it's actually uh, intended to be re- read that now out of the ground, the Lord God created or Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what we what he would call them. And again, this we talked about this in the first, uh, or I should say the second podcast on Genesis 1, that the act of naming things was to actually give it an, an order and a function. But guys, again, we see here, like, we, we've got uh, plant life and we have animal life actually being created and formed after Adam. So that should give us an indication here. This isn't this isn't actually a story that's simply trying to retell or uh, recapitulate again what's happened on day six in Genesis one. Uh, there's a different story. Um, you know, Walton calls it a sequel that's intended to again tell. It tells a different story, and both of the stories are true, but we just need to understand them in the way that they're intended to be understood. If, again, this is happening within day six, then it's like it's problematic, and it kind of doesn't make sense. You know, uh, day six doesn't talk about these other things, and yeah, so um, there's other reasons, again. Um, there, there's some other perhaps literary clues that give evidence that Genesis 2 is really like a sequel. It's telling about something else than uh, simply like a, a retelling or a more detailed look at Genesis 1. And, and we can see that literary introduction in Genesis 2, verse 4. Uh, this is where... Uh, this f- literary formula of this is the account of blank. It, it happens actually here in uh, 10 or arguably 11 other times uh, if you want to include Genesis 1-1. So again, another indication that this is not just a, a snapshot of what happened on day six. This is actually, this is telling a, a separate story. So how do maybe some of these differences in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 explain maybe different things to those original audiences? I think if you were to read Genesis 1 and you read Genesis 2 and you understand them as as, as two distinct creation stories that are having specific purposes to their audience and hence why they're both in there, we see a story here in Genesis 1 of uh, a state again of uh, tobu e bohu, uh, the, the state of like non order, and God is bringing order out of it. And the purpose of him bringing order out of it is Sabbath, it's to rest, it's to lead to his dwelling in it. And now, what we get in Genesis 2 is sort of a an anthropological story. That is to say, you know, Genesis 1 maybe gives us a theology uh, and gives the people of that time a theology for why creation. And the goal of it is to order it so that God would live in it. But Genesis 2, again, answers some of the questions that one, you know, the ancient Israelites that are are living in captivity are, are wrestling with, again, wrestling with What's, what's my purpose? And this is telling them the story of their purpose. It's also telling them the story of their calling as a people. And it's also telling them a story about how they fell as well. 
Genesis 2 starts with, instead of a story of God ordering like the, the cosmos or ordering earth, Genesis 2, uh, we do see a bit of a state of non-order. And there's, there's non-order in a sort of um, earthly sense. The humans now, the story of Genesis 2 is how God calls humanity, remember Adam, Adam, humans, to function in a sacred space in its behalf. It's now they're bringing order to it. They're the gardeners, right? So this is uh, more of a unique snapshot of what humans are called to do in the, in the world. Genesis 1 tells us how and why God, or really we should say why God ordered the cosmos, and it does explain something theologically in the how sense, but not in the scientific sense. That's not in their um, the, the range of things they're wrestling with. And Genesis 2 is focusing on the anthropological. It's focusing on the human uh, vocation. So here, here we have got a story that starts with humans being formed first, and then humans, after humans, we have plant life and animal life. And that's also a like a theological and anthropological statement about you know God's ordering of creation, right? Humans are are primary and these these things that are in creation are actually not just merely there to serve humans, but humans are actually there to care for it and to take care of it and to steward it. Another misnomer that we maybe have when we are uh, reading Genesis 2 is the imposition, again, of us looking for some sort of description of material human origins. Uh, And then we go and we look at the word dust and how Adam was created out of the dust, and we maybe think that this is giving some, us some sort of scientific description. And, and in fact, again, in a story that's filled and layered with intentional symbolism here, Adam being brought out of the dust is connection to his mortality. So there's multiple misnomers here that, that are attached to this notion of Adam being formed out of the dust. The first, again, is this imposition that uh, we think that God made the first human from from dust, from actual physical dust. And, the, the, you know, who knows? Maybe that's how it actually happened, but that's not, not, not the question or the idea that's attempted to be attempting to be communicated here. What it is a statement of is Adam's mortality. And this is why we actually see this throughout Genesis, throughout the Old Testament, and, and actually in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the association of humans and dust is attached to their mortality. So big clue, big clue as to how to interpret that. You just go one chapter over from Genesis 2, and we go into Genesis 3, and Genesis 3.19, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Again, this is uh, clearly a, a description of what humans are, but not in the scientific sense. It's a description of humans being mortal. And this has huge implications, guys, for actually the rest of the way that we interpret scripture uh, on a range of other issues. You know, somewhere along the line, there was this notion of the like inherently immortal soul 
that that humans were created immortal and this just isn't the case like ancient um ancient the ancient jewish people the israelites didn't think this this wasn't part of their view this isn't communicated in genesis 2 or 3 right i i remember hearing growing up um a sense that adam and eve were created immortal that they were their souls were that they were created immortal and that their rebellion against god meant they lost their immortality um but there's there's no evidence of that. Uh, in fact, the evidence is just the opposite. They are created as mortal, as dust, to return to dust. And again, like immortal people don't need a tree of life. And they, so uh, you don't need a tree of life that, uh, again, as we read in Genesis, the, the banishment of that keeps them from immortality. So they're not created mortal. Adam being made from the dust is a description of humanity's mortality. So, you know, this is a, a valuable theological insight, and it's, it's, it's very central to the way the, that would, the way that the author intended to communicate this story in Genesis chapter 2 and into verse uh, chapter 3. Some of these important symbols. Adam and Eve are in a garden. Gardens throughout the ancient Near Eastern world and ancient Near Eastern stories frequently denote a, a sacred space. So Adam and Eve are placed in a garden. That isn't to say, again, this is an assumption, that isn't to say that there isn't a, a world outside of the garden. And it also isn't to say that there's the possibility of, uh, of humans outside of the garden, but perhaps these particular humans or uh, these archetypal references here are, are, are designated to this vocation in this space. I think there's strong evidence to believe that uh, the story of humanity, God's creation of humanity in day six, that this is a general humanity. And in Genesis 2, we have a specific humanity or we have specific uh, archetypal representatives in Adam and Eve that are placed in a particular location in a particular sacred space to perform certain sacred functions there to act again as a priesthood in this place. But that doesn't rule out the possibility that there are things happening outside of this sacred space. Uh, one of the most obvious things that, that frequently comes up is the, the question of when uh, Cain killed Abel and he received his mark, he was quite quite afraid of who might see his mark. Well, you know, who's he afraid of out there? And he goes out and he builds, you know, he, Cain builds a city, right? And like, you can't build a city by yourself. And he finds a wife. And again, there's, you know, you might just go, well, that was another one of Adam and Eve's kids. Well, yeah, but we don't have to think that either. We don't have to think that. What we What's far more likely, and it actually ends up lining up with the archaeological, historic evidence, and actually, we can talk more about this at another time, but it actually, it lines up with the scientific evidence, too, that there were humans, lots of humans, 
that lived and were around uh, six to 10,000 years ago. So it's very well possible that there is a particular person uh, that was designated, a couple that God elected, he called to a vocational call, and he called them to act as humanity's representatives in this sort of particular vocation, this vocation of caring for the sacred space, this garden. Along with gardens being a symbolic representation of sacred space, trees are also important symbols in the ancient Near Eastern world. It's a motif and an image that is uh, very common throughout ancient Near Eastern literature and iconography. Uh, We see it especially in the Neo-Assyrian period. Uh, Historians and art historians actually even study this because there's, there's there's no Near Eastern text that anybody has found thus far that gives a clear explanation of what these trees Mean, but they're they're frequently called trees of life or sacred trees in the ancient Near Eastern world. So this is this is a, a common image, and so this inspired storyteller who's writing to Israel. Again, we have to keep in mind that's the audience. The audience is Israel, not us, not even general uh, the rest of the world. First, he's writing to Israel. He's using imagery that's really common, dealing with issues that are very current and problematic for them. And so we don't have to get hung up on, is it a fruit? Is it an orange tree? How in the world do these these trees, are? can we go out there and, and find them and go on some sort of Indiana Jones quest for the tree of life out there? I, just That's just going way beyond the, the bounds of what's intended to be communicated in this story. So along with garden and these sacred trees, these trees that are beyond just mere physical trees, we also have another symbol, and a symbol that, quite frankly, can be disturbing to a lot of our theological paradigms. We have a chaos creature. We have a serpent, something that has entered into God's sacred space that doesn't seem to be all that good. It actually causes quite a bit of problems for our heroes in this story. This is problematic for us if we, again, are attempting to read this from sort of a modern literalist eye. In fact, if anything, this is the one point in this story in which my experience of growing up as an evangelical Christian, this was the one area of the story that people didn't really read as very in a modern literalism. They actually saw the serpent as symbolically representing Satan. Now, some might say something along the lines of Satan possessing an animal, but what we have here is a it's a talking animal, a talking snake, and there is no clear explanation or definition of that snake being Satan. So we are now making a sort of interpretation of a symbol here. 
Now, full disclosure here, though Christians have traditionally interpreted this snake as being some sort of manifestation of Satan or some sort of representation of Satan in the garden, it it probably wouldn't have been what the ancient Israelites had thought of. They wouldn't have at least named it as Satan. There would have been likely an association of Satan, or I should say of the serpent, again, as a kind of a general generic uh, chaos creature, uh, one that, again, was very common for the ancient Near Eastern people to believe in, the ones, as we mentioned, and I think both the previous two podcasts in this series, like Leviathan and Rahab. I even brought up Leviathan in that first sort of story to begin the podcast, because the prophet Isaiah talks about on the day of the Lord that God would defeat Leviathan, and even specifically says Leviathan, the coiled serpent. So, it's very much possible that ancient Israelites would have believed that there was some sort of force of disorder and would have given it such sort of a symbolic representation as uh, as was common in their neighbors as like serpents and the Leviathan. But uh, admittedly, it's not until the New Testament till as the progressive revelation of God in Scripture, as we get to Christ, that we actually see this sharp difference in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where uh, this sort of chaos, this disrupting force, this opposing force of to God's right ordering in the world is given a name, a specific name, and the name is Satan. Uh, you know, a, a discussion for another podcast, I j- we'll just leave you a quick side note about this, is that, yes, Satan as a name is mentioned in the Old Testament in limited cases, but there is strong debate as to whether or not these cases, such as in the book of Job, are actually referring to the same Satan that's being referred to in the New Testament, or if this challenger, this accuser in the Old Testament is just an angel among other angels. But that's a podcast for another time. Now, oftentimes, we as modern readers might come to this text with sorts of questions about, uh, we could say, theodicy questions. That is, theodicy is, is the theological term that denotes kind of the discussion or wrestling with the, the problem of evil. We might come with sorts of theodicy questions, questions about why are there natural disasters or childhood cancer, or why is there all of this malevolence and evil in the world? And you know, there might be, in a certain sense, a way that Christians have historically said, well, it's because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden that all of this stuff has happened. But I think the evidence from the text actually isn't intended to answer that question. In fact, even just simple follow-up questions with really doing no necessarily no necessary due diligence into understanding the Hebrew language, understanding uh, ancient Near Eastern culture would reveal that we have some problems on our hands with thinking of what's happening here as trying to give some sort of cosmic explanation for why there's evil and suffering. And one of the obvious problems here is that we already have this chaos creature in existence, and somehow he's made his way 
into the garden. Now, Walton Walton argues, John Walton argues that uh, he, you know, it's possible that Adam and Eve somehow, again, if you open up to the possibility that this sacred space in this story isn't the only place that exists in Earth, he, you know, he argues that potentially maybe, you know, we could see the possibility of Adam and Eve uh, encountering this snake first outside of the garden. To me, I think that's a bit of a stretch. Uh, it's not a necessary... We don't actually have any like scene changes in the text that would make that really a, a feasible option. So somehow, in some way, shape, or form, in God's good creation, you have a deceiving, a cunning serpent that's done an awful lot of harm in deceiving Adam and Eve. And so, you know... We, we already have problems here, problems with this notion that in Genesis 2, what we have is, and actually taking place in Genesis 1, is a pristine, perfect earth that n- doesn't have anything, like we would say, wrong or bad or destructive happening in it, as if what was happening in the beginning was essentially heaven, essentially what is going to come in the new heavens and new earth happening in uh, all of creation. And so, but this isn't actually, this doesn't even make sense because we already have a deceiving, cunning serpent. We have a chaos creature in the garden, and we also have a tree that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't like choosing the tree was evil, though in a sense it was rejecting God because he had commanded them to not take of that particular tree, but the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, That means that evil is already a thing. It's just whether or not they are going to come to know and be burdened with this responsibility of knowing it, if they're going to now have to feel the effects of good and evil in a way that they didn't previously experience it when they were fulfilling their function as caretakers and as um, priestly caretakers of God's sacred space. So sadly, we get no answers or explanations about this stuff, the stuff that maybe really perplexes us. This isn't the right text to come to for that. What it does do, though, it does answer a different sort of question about the problem of evil, and it's a question that's on the minds of the original Israelite Jewish audience. It's a question about their own experience as a people, their own experience of suffering. It answers for them, gives them insights into their questions about why Have we been exiled east of our own Eden, east of our own promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the place that was good, the place that was fruitful? Why have we been exiled from that place? Why have we been banished, in a sense, from God's presence? You have to remember that Solomon's temple carried for the Israelites the very presence of God, just like Genesis 1 right? The seven days and Solomon's seven years of building the temple was to lead towards God's rest, his Sabbath there, his abiding there. And now we've been cast out of his presence and we're in Babylonian captivity. This does answer a different sort of theodicy question, but it's localized and particularized to the ancient Israelites. 
and it deals with their question about why are we experiencing this particular suffering? And the answer is clear. The answer is clear, and it's it's the message of the prophets. It's the message throughout the story of Israel in the Old Testament, is that when they rejected their vocational call, when they rejected their covenant, the story is, is that they lose the perks of that covenant, and they lose the perks of that vocation, and they are then given over to um, the natural destructive consequences of rejecting the author of life. So this this answers that question. Sadly, as much as I'd love it to, Genesis 2 through 3 doesn't seem to answer questions about things like natural disasters, doesn't seem to answer questions about childhood cancer and to answer about all the horrific evils in the world. So the first one, you know, we've been talking a little bit about, again about in Genesis 2, the definitive article, the placed in front of the Hebrew word Adam, and how throughout Genesis 2 and into Genesis 3, it, it, it's, it's very arguable whether there is any sort of reference to Adam being Adam being an individual person's name. And that perhaps the, the likely evidence here is that as a person used as an individual name, that doesn't happen till Genesis 5. So maybe you're going, hey, Paul, are you, you saying that you don't believe that Genesis 2 through 3, that this story is telling us about the first human that ever lived? And I would say this, I would say there's, there's reason for it to not have to be that. And uh, a few reasons why I say that. First of all, Genesis 1, again, if we think of Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 2 being like a sequel or a separate story, we can see in Genesis 1, there is a designation of, uh, on day 6 of God's ordering and, and, and purposing of humanity as creation of them. So I think there's very strong evidence that God has made humanity, obviously he's the, the 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 creator of humanity and that there is a general human population that is uh, homo sapiens that are on the planet and uh it'd be my personal opinion that uh the best way to read Genesis 2, again, is a story about how God, among all of humanity, uh, elected a um, person, a people, a representative, an archetype that would represent humanity uh, on behalf of humanity in doing a specific vocation and call that humanity was called to. That's the best way for me to understand it. Uh, I think that makes the most sense of the text. Now, does that mean that Adam, there wasn't a historical Adam? I think there's a great book out there. Um, Zondervan Publishers does this counterpoint series. I'd highly recommend this great pretty brief book. It's not too academic or heady. And it's just uh, the f- uh, four views on historical Adam. 
And in that book, I think the, the strongest arguments uh, come from John Walton, who I have been referencing throughout this podcast series. Uh, he argues for a historical atom and also an archetypal atom. That in Genesis two and three, he is uh, the, this name is uh, not a name of a particular person, but it is an archetypal figure that may or may not have been designated to an individual person or a group of people, and that even in the New Testament that we see Adam used both as the name of an individual, but also in an archetypal role. And in fact, it's his archetypal role that is most relevant uh, to the, the New Testament authors. There's also a pretty strong, convincing argument from another scholar, uh, Dennis Lamoureux, and I, I may be mispronouncing his last name. It's French, and I took years of French in high school, and actually a couple semesters in college, and I, I'm still I still butcher French names. Dennis Lamoureux argues uh, for for the position that there is no uh, historical Adam, and his his argument is, uh, I think, a, a pretty solid argument as well. To me, though, I would be more inclined to uh, say that in Genesis 2 and 3, we have a uh, true story that uses symbolism to tell a very important story to Israel that we need to learn from too, but it is not talking about the first human that ever existed. Uh, if we use the genealogies, and I don't, here's another problem here is that using genealogies, genealogies have different functions um, in, in the Bible than what we might consider the purposes of genealogies for, which is to just simply tell like who came before who. There's, there's stories wrapped up in genealogies, another podcast for another time. But I know one of the common ways people deduced sort of the, the age of humans was to simply count up the genealogies and you go back and now you have uh, Adam that lived, you know, six to 8,000 years ago. But I think there's strong reason to not believe that uh, the first humans existed six to 8,000 years ago. Uh, I think there's likely evidence that there probably there was potentially a historic person named Adam that's mentioned in these genealogies, and uh, his, his name human, his name man, humanity, um, is the, potentially the the name given to a, a person that started a you know the particular line of people in the biblical story that is is most relevant to the biblical story but i i think there's even biblical evidence that he's not the only intended to be communicated as the first and only human again great example of this is in the story of Cain and Abel right um if we think of maybe Genesis 1 as god uh, creating and uh, purposing that image bearers would be in the earth, and perhaps a vocational election is given to Adam, and out of Adam, man and woman, they have a priestly function together. 
that uh, if there's a humanity outside of a, perhaps even if there is a literal physical place called Eden that they were, were placed in to do this, like a temple or like an Israel, like a promised land, that I think there's strong evidence that there are people that exist outside of that. A great example of this is in the story of Cain. After Cain kills Abel, he's given a mark, and the mark is so that people know you're not supposed to mess with this guy, and why does he need a mark? Why does he not need, why doesn't he just go tell, God just tell, hey, Abel, oh, Abel's dead, I guess you can't tell Adam, Eve, maybe Seth, other, their other kids, perhaps, um, don't mess with him. But instead, he needs a mark to protect him from people outside of his family borders. And then he goes out and builds a city. You don't build a city by yourself. And he gets married. And again, I think it's just more problematic to think that he stayed on the family property, he married one of his sisters or something, and then like built a city with his kids. I um, There's just as many problems with that to me as there are with the notion that there are humans outside of it. The other key thing, guys, that that leads me to this conclusion, and we just can't discount this, is that the light of God's general revelation that he has illumined uh, and given to all points to the existence of many, many people living long before uh, six to even 10,000 years ago. We have so much, I'm, uh, and my undergrad degree was in history. We, uh, to say overwhelming evidence doesn't even, it's not even a, a strong enough uh, term uh, to describe the amount of evidence that we have for not just individual peoples, but even like civilizations being around long before six to eight thousand years ago. And we certainly have hunter-gatherer communities and cave paintings and uh, um, arrowheads and evidence of, of human activity, uh, homo sapiens using uh, living in communities that date way, 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 way uh, far beyond that. And that's not to even include uh, some of the other things. And I'm kind of descending into the least controversial. Uh, Francis Collins, the uh, incredible man of God, great Christian scientist, who's the head of the Human Genome Project, right? Um, he makes fantastic contributions to a uh, nonprofit um, uh, called BioLogos that deals with some of these very... Uh, subjects and his work in the human human genome project is quite clear that humans have been around for a much much longer time now for me that doesn't eliminate the possibility that there was someone named Adam maybe 6 to 10,000 years ago uh, and there was perhaps even an individual person named Eve and Adam that were designated to be sort of uh you know, the federal representatives for humanity in this story. But I think we don't have to make the text answer certain questions that we have, force it to say certain uh, statements that aren't being said in the biblical text, statements that would make it seem as if the only way to understand reality, to understand human origins, is to understand it in a young earth, young human 
young humanity lens. Now, some might argue that the employment of reason, especially the employment of reason towards the sciences, should never affect our biblical interpretation. They might suggest that to do so is to contaminate the the special revelation of God's word. I think this is a faulty way of thinking. I think it's a simply incomprehensible way of thinking. To ignore the role of reason, even as we explore the Bible, to eliminate that makes a world of total nonsense. If we can't employ reason towards, say, the logical deduction of what words mean in a sentence, if we can't use reason to associate King David with living in a particular time in a particular place, and using a thing like a map to locate where David lived in a particular time and place. If we can't do that, if we can't, for example, use reason to differentiate between biblical genres, to understand the differences between, let's say, reading the book of Revelation and reading the gospel of Matthew and how you would read those things differently, then the Bible becomes absolutely meaningless. It's nonsensical to say that reason does not play a role in our interpretation of Scripture. In the year 1615 AD, the Roman Inquisition concluded that Galileo's heliocentrism, that is Galileo's view that it was the sun, not the earth, which was the center of what we would now call the solar system, was, quote, formally heretical, since it explicitly contradicts in many places the sense of Holy Scripture. Now, as you hear that story, and maybe you're familiar with that already, I ask you the question, who was right? Galileo or the Inquisitors? Who had a closer view to reality as God had actually created it? Galileo or the Inquisitors? And what methods did each employ to get closer to the truth or further to the truth? Is it true that Galileo was teaching heretical things, contradictory to the sense of Holy Scripture? Or is it more likely that those who had come to that conclusion, the inquisitors themselves, had wrongly interpreted the Holy Scriptures? They had missed out on a possibility right before them of seeing how they had been reading their Bible wrong and missed it. May we not do the same. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I want to invite you to subscribe either on Podbean, iTunes, or if you're watching here on YouTube. I'd love to hear from you guys. We've got some great comments, some great feedback on how maybe this podcast has been helpful. But I also want to hear questions you're having. I certainly didn't get to all the questions in today's podcast, but this series isn't over. We're going to keep exploring issues related to science and faith in this series. We're going to explore a little bit more perhaps on some of the questions 
that you might have about maybe some of the implications of if we read Genesis with uh, perhaps a fresh way, a way that gets us closer to the location of inspiration, how that might change maybe the way that we interpret science. We're also going to explore why science itself is not without its own theology, that all scientific statements and descriptions also have theological implications. So stay tuned. The best way you can stay tuned is by subscribing. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you again next time.